not a rip-off. We should get our money back. Mom, we got ripped off by the idiots who live here. You're not gonna do anything about this? Mom, we should get our money back. She turned to me very slowly and said, What makes you think the ride's over? What makes you think it's ever gonna end? That was the first of these experiences I had. I'm still reluctant to call them dreams. Hey everybody, welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We have a very bizarre film that we're going to be looking at this time. A lot of our entries are quite bizarre, but even amongst the 25, I guess at this point probably closer to 30 that we've done, this one ranks up there pretty high. We are going to be looking at The Evil Within, which is a 2017 film by Andrew Getty, written and directed by Andrew Getty. It, uh, it's a movie that easily could have come out in the mid-2000s, but uh, did not. It did not actually come out until 2017, and we will talk about some of its bizarre production and everything that uh, went on behind the scenes and then uh, in terms of what's actually happening within the film. So uh, I am going to kick it over to our panel here and do some introductions, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the movie itself and what it entails. So we have rejoining us here, Tim, who's been on a number of our horror podcasts. And Tim, you uh, you got recently published with a piece of horror fiction, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, uh, end of last year, I had a short story published in a political horror anthology called after the Kool-Aid is gone. So that was fun. It was, uh, I wrote it and then the election happened and Trump did everything after the election. And suddenly I didn't like my story as much anymore, just to give you an idea of what direction I was going. Okay. But, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was fun to be published. Cool. So some predictive text there. All right. And we have Dusty coming back, who's been on a few of our episodes. He was on Elves most recently, I think, was your last one, which was another bizarro horror watch. And Dusty's a pretty big horror fan and is also a man with a podcast himself. He's uh, talked about it on some previous episodes, so if you want to bring that one up. Yeah, sure. Um, I have a podcast called Gadfly, where we talk about third parties, French candidates, and just generally weird American electoral history. Um, the one that should be coming out when this comes out, I think we're doing an episode on a goat who was a mayor. <laughs> and his two children who are also mayors. Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's real weird, and uh, I, I want to hear that now. Um, okay, and our uh, third panelist, we have joining us for the first time. Um, she was in college with all of us, just, uh, you know, not necessarily at the same time. But uh, we have Layla joining us. She's uh, a writer, and you have uh, you recently done some stuff with Sundance, you were saying, right? Yeah, I, um, I just uh, finished covering Sundance as a press person. So I spent the last week watching like 20 different movies. And, oh, cool. um, yeah, they're not really known as much for being like a genre festival, though. A lot of like, you know, horror movies did launch there, like Get Out and The Babadook and other movies like that. So there were a couple of cool, you know, horror discoveries nice. there this year. 
Yeah, any uh, any particular titles we should have on our radar for the coming months? Um, probably the one that I thought was most interesting was, uh, well, two, actually. One was called Censor, and it's a Welsh filmmaker, a female. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but uh, she, uh, it's all about, it's basically a love letter to video nasties and, like, that whole yeah. phenomenon that happened in the 80s over there. Um, and so it's shot, like, on film, and uh, it's sort of, like, you know, she, there's two worlds. There's the gray world of like where she lives as a censor. She's a film censor. Mm. And then there's the really colorful world of the 80s VHS, you know, horror giallo oh, okay. movies yeah, that she watches. Cool. Yeah. What did you say and the name was? It, it, it cut out for me when you said the title. It's called Censor. Censor. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And cool. she plays a film censor. The, uh, the main character is a film censor. Uh, and then the other one is called uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair. And it's really kind of this more experimental piece that's sort of like a creepypasta YouTube video uh, found footage type thing that's all about, like, the internet, the horrors of the internet and what it's doing to us. And um, it's about this girl who's doing this RPG of, like, kind of a Slender Man type thing. Like, we're all going to the World's Fair. And it's really dark and creepy i think you had tim at uh creepy pasta i think he's all in at that mention there you go <laughs> uh okay well thanks for joining us and we will launch into here the evil within okay so the evil within as i said at the top here is a very bizarre film it was written directed by andrew getty as i said getty uh is one of the heirs of the getty oil fortune J. Paul Getty was his grandfather. So J. Paul Getty was one of the richest men in the world, I think was the richest man in the world at the time, and I think for a long time. And I think he's still ranked, and the family is still ranked as you know among the richest people in the world. That movie, All the Money in the World, that they had to kick Kevin Spacey out of for various reasons, um, that focused on the Getty family and the kidnapping. So this is... Uh, that the, the guy who was kidnapped, I think would have been Andrew Getty's uncle, I believe based on the, the timeline, as I understand it, or possibly maybe, uh, maybe a cousin, cousin or brother. I'm not entirely sure, but let me, con- let me Andrew consult Getty... the pin board that I have everyone. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tim has <laughs> a lot of red yarn, yarn in the background. Uh, but yeah, so Andrew Getty is uh, a member of that family, and he did go to film school. I dug into this. He went to uh, USC, I believe, and uh, NYU, I think. Um, so I don't know what other projects he might have worked on. He didn't release anything else in his life. He, he has died, but he didn't release anything widely. He has no feature film credits to his name. There could be some short films or something, experimental films that are floating around out there or something, but this is the only film that he, according to IMDb, it's the only thing he worked on at all. He has no other credits listed unless sometimes IMDb has like different entries for people, you know, when they screw stuff up, I don't know, but or he's got like the only thing of his stuff like Prince did. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the JD <laughs> Salinger closet or something, but, um, but yeah, so he self-financed this and it costs somewhere between four and $6 million. They shot it all in his, or not all, but largely shot in his own mansion, uh, which I believe was in Los Angeles. And it began filming in 2002 and it went through a lot of changes in the cast. The cast includes Frederick Kohler, 
as Dennis Peterson. He is the lead. Sean Patrick Flannery as John Peterson, probably most Boondock famous. Saint. Yeah, from Boondock Saints. He was also one of the young Indiana Jones from back in the day. Dina Meyer as Lydia. Michael Berryman as Cadaver. And he is sort of this ghostly, demonic figure. Michael Berryman would be very familiar to horror fans. He is the weird, creepy-looking guy from the Hills Have Eyes movies. And he's also had a lengthy career in horror and science fiction where he's played a lot of monsters, scary guys, tough guys, oddballs, and that kind of stuff. So from what I understand from what I was reading that the production of this started in 2002, there was a lot of overturn in terms of who was in it, who was working on it. Frederick Kohler, I guess, kind of survived the entirety of the production and Michael Berryman did. But I guess from... The comments I was reading from Kohler, I'm guessing Sean Patrick Flannery was not the original brother and some of these other people were not the original people because he said it was only him and Berryman that like made it through the gauntlet. So there was kind of a tumultuous production process, smaller budget film shot in this mansion, um, you know, mostly was not released, was not, was not released until 2017 but Getty himself died from an ulcer likely brought on by meth addiction. And that was in 2015. So then the film was released in 2017 after his editor came in to finish the film and kind of rework it. So from 2002 to whenever they wrapped, which I'm not sure how many years they actually were working on filming it, so I would assume at least several years based on the kind of tumultuous aspect of it. Um, so for at least several years, they're working on shooting it probably. And then for the rest of that time, I guess he is editing and doing post-production for basically a decade. And then he died with it being you know not finished to the level that he wanted it to be. And then it was finished and released. It was originally under the title, The Storyteller. And then it was finally released under the title, The Evil Within. So that's kind of um, an overview of the background of it. There's probably some more details we can dive into. I did want to state that Dusty in our notes gave a very good summation of this film, which is it's pretty much exactly the kind of movie I'd expect from a meth-addicted billionaire recluse, which is true. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's there all over, but, uh, but the, the plot in a nutshell before I open the floor here is that our lead character, Dennis is mentally handicapped and he lives with his brother in, uh, you know, some kind of mansion in Los Angeles or in surrounding suburbs It's never really explicitly clear how they have money, why they have money, anything like that. His brother wants to sell the mansion, isn't telling Dennis about it. His brother is Sean Patrick Flannery. He has to take care of Dennis, and the brother also has a long-term girlfriend and or fiancé, and so there's some conflict that are that's there for a while. So that's kind of the background of what's happening in their lives. Meanwhile, Dennis is haunted by dreams and has been his entire life. And he has one particular apparition that appears to him, which is Michael Berryman, 
who is the guy from the Hills Have Eyes, and he's all like in kind of like gray body paint, and they make him look extra creepy, and he's some kind of demonic figure that lives like on the other side of a mirror and also in his dreams. And so that character is sort of like trying, well, he's, he's basically like kind of punishing and torturing Dennis in dreams, but then he wants Dennis to start doing things in reality and then eventually he's kind of trying to take over Dennis so there's just a lot happening um and then it goes from there and becomes just sort of a you know it's a it's a horror film but there's many many bizarre elements at play that you're not going to find if you just go to an average horror movie that's you know playing in a theater so we are going to dive deep into all of that and there's lots to talk about all right so what do we make of the evil within well, I, I'm going to start off by just kind of like apologizing because I, I think as evident by by like your attempt to try to summarize this movie, there is so much going on. I don't know how well I'm going to do like staying on track with any particular train of thought as we're talking about this. So for people listening who have not seen this it's going to be real confusing i feel so just preemptive apology for that and then this movie i (laughs) i went into it not knowing what to well i i went into it at first when you said the evil within i was i i stupidly was like oh are we doing the video game i wanted to play that uh but it's not um i went into this very cold and i came away with it just cold in a different way yeah like there is like you said there's so much going on and there's good stuff in there but the goods it you know it'd be like you know having little pieces of like really good steak mixed in with like a steaming bowl of shit (laughs) like there's there's like it's really hard to extract like those good things that are worthwhile from all the stuff that's in there that either doesn't make any sense or is really cringy offensive in the worst way. All right. Some opening thoughts for Tim, <laughs> Layla. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I just want to know like where you found this movie. <laughs> why, and, and, and also you want to like, put me on a watch movie? list. <laughs> you know, I, I think I remember we, but we like, were deep in the woods of Appalachia and there underneath a log was a blank DVD. <laughs> I mean, it just feels, I've obviously never heard of it. And I guess that's, you know, the point, but um, definitely um, different, definitely disturbing. A lot of layers. Yeah, to answer your question, because you did pose that in our uh, prep for it as well, of where did you find this? Um, basically, like, I just try to keep my ear to the ground for anything out there and kind of weird. Um, this was not where I found it, but for all of you and for any of our listeners, if you've never heard of something called Fantastic Fest, uh, it's something you should check out. It is a very interesting film festival. I've never been there in person or anything, but it's something that used to get, uh, you know, when it was actually operational, Pre-COVID, it got reported on pretty regularly, and I think it happens in the fall, I think maybe September, or maybe September's when the information of what's going to play there, I can't remember, but basically it happened. It happens every year, presumably we'll be coming back, 
but they show all kinds of just bizarro films. Some of them are vintage and some of the, a lot of them are new movies from all around the world and they will just be schlock junk mixed in with really high concept, interesting things that like could actually be good. So I always keep my ear to the ground on that and look for things. I'll read the synopses and like watch some trailers and be like, oh, is this something I want to like find? And then it usually takes like four years for it to come out on DVD so I can actually watch it. But uh, so that's one way that I find some of this weird stuff on this one, though. Um, there was a site called Birth Movies Death that unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore. And they used to have some pretty good articles. And I remember coming across this. This was just some article. I think they probably used the image of Michael Barriman as this gray demon thing. And I was like, what's that? And then the guy, it was like one of the better writers. And he did a write up on it and just kind of dissected it, talking about the stuff in it that works and talking about how bizarre it is and insular it is and wrong it is at times. So I think it just became insular is actually a good description that I didn't. Think yeah. So I, I think it was just something that I, I saw this article on and it was, it's the, the story behind it was so bizarre and some of the stuff being described in it sounded very interesting. So it just became one that, you know, went on my long list of movies of like, I got to see this. So I saw it several years ago, like shortly after it came out and yeah. And then here we are. I figured this will be a good one for the podcast because it's super weird and no one's ever seen it. So uh, that's, that's the answer to your question. Dusty, where are you at initially on the evil within? Oh, man. So um, this, this movie had been recommended to me by a, by another friend who saw it while both drunk and high and so oh my god what yeah yeah and so i i he he's a very good taste when it comes to movies so bad you should watch them and i figured all right i'm just not gonna learn anything about this literally all i knew is sean patrick flannery was in it and it was filmed in the early 2000s so i'm just i'm expect the only other horror thing i'd ever seen him in was saw seven and he was so wonderfully hacky in that that I was like, oh, this is going to be a fun, weird time. I'm going to watch Powder do some horror things. Oh, yeah, he was Powder. Yeah. <laughs> and Whoa, he was Powder. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Powder. Um, but yeah, I and so going in, that's what I thought it was going to be. It was just like, you know, some weird effects and Sean Patrick Flannery screaming a bunch. I, I did not expect a movie to make the same mistake Geely made two years later. And to make that even more of the movie, it's just, and it, it breaks my heart because the Frederick Kohler is oh, wait, can name? you explain the Geely connection? Because I don't get it. <laughs> oh, so, so one of the, uh, the plot points of Geely is there is a character in it who is mentally handicapped. Oh, okay. Played by Sorry. Justin been, Martha. Yeah. It's been ages since I've seen Geely. So I totally forgot. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Go ahead. Yeah, and I hate to use the sentence, but where Geely succeeds in comparison is that Justin Bartha isn't the main character of the movie. And so it, it, you luckily get a lot less of that offensive time and more time to just generally bizarre dialogue and acting. And um, so the main actor in this was uh, Frederick Kohler, was it? Yeah, yeah. It, it breaks my heart because I've seen him in so many B-movies where he's usually the bright spot. He's like... He, he's in all the Death Race movies. It's like him and Danny Trejo are the only two people who are in all of them. And he's he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's in. And so seeing him just willingly play this kind of a role is just devastating to see. And especially for so long. Yeah. 
and I, I like I it's kind of the elephant in the room for me like th- the fact that the movie is so centered on a mentally disabled person and because there, there there are two big problems with it the first is you made the Geely connection. Like my note was, it was like you took the bit from Tropic Thunder and dropped it in the middle of a horror mm-hmm. movie because the way it's played, like it's simple Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, it, it's, he's not playing him like an actual character or person who may have, you know, disabilities. He's playing every collection of cliche and tropes that Hollywood has designated for people with disabilities. And so like it, from the get-go there is there's a remove where you don't you can never get a sense of who dennis is as a character and it's just incredibly offensive like to to uh to a a bizarre degree like you know like you said geely didn't necessarily succeed it was more like it decided to not step on a landmine um and this movie just jumped up and down on that landmine with with dennis but the other problem too is, and and I we'll talk about Getty's mind frame later, I'm sure. But when you're when you are tying a horror movie so closely to a character with mental disabilities, it starts to make really not great implications. Oh um, yeah, that's and. <laughs> And this movie, like I put at one point, like I feel like this is a there's so much going on that if you try to think about what this movie is like, quote about, you will just hurt your brain. But it it you can't shake the sense that this movie has a real like there's just this really negative view of handicapped people that uh, and disabled people that is just underlying everything going on, and it's really rough. Well, I don't I don't know that. I mean, it's really hard to suss out exactly what Getty is trying to say or present, but I don't, I think his sympathy lies with Dennis. I don't think he's trying to go at the Dennis character or make the Dennis character into a monster. But what Tim is saying is correct that you not only have this problematic depiction of somebody who's mentally handicapped, but then that guy ends up being our murderer in the movie. Now, there's a layer to it where he's not just murdering people. I mean, and that, and there's like, that's, I, I remember reading in that article talking about that this was a very 80s kind of thing. You know, like you go back to Jason. Jason is presented as being mentally handicapped and then becomes a murderer based on them treating him poorly and everything. So, and then there's plenty of, you know, movies that were ripping off Friday and everything. This ha- does have an extra layer to it where he's, in a sense, not totally responsible for what he's doing. And this demon is like taking control. And I guess one of the ex, one of the inspirations was the son of Sam killings in that Getty liked the idea of just thought it was interesting when the son of Sam was saying that the dog was like a demon and told him to kill these people. And he thought that was an interesting, like way into a story. And it's like, okay, but yeah, you, at that point though, you are, taking a character who's mentally handicapped, not being performed particularly great, and then making him murder a bunch of adults, children, and animals. Because <laughs> we get it all in this movie. Um, so yeah, like it, it, it becomes, yeah, extra pl- problematic because of that. Whereas with Geely, with what you're talking about, Dusty, is like that character is merely a character in the movie, but he's not out 
killing people, so it's not adding an extra element of awfulness. Yeah, it's, I would agree with Tim on this, that there are just accidental morals everywhere. Just... <laughs> this movie is problematic yeah, AF. Yeah. Like, it... <laughs> Ugh. Yarp. Yeah, it's, I've, I've been trying to, since watching that movie, I've been trying to figure out why. Just why was that the character choice that you made? Because when, when it's revealed... Um, because it wasn't like uh, the character uh, doesn't have this disability from birth. It is due to a an accident-ish sort of thing. And I don't see how the connection gets made because we'll get to it later. But yeah, it's just there are so many other directions that could have been taken that could have worked just as well, if not better. So it just, I just keep wondering you could, why. You could have it, You, I mean, not that much of the plot matters or is good but you could you could do a lot of this structure and the character doesn't need to be mentally mm-hmm. handicapped like he could he could be the brother could feel beholden to him for any number of reasons it could be financial mm-hmm. or you could do like a whatever happened to baby jane thing where like baby jane where, where her sister is in a wheelchair and baby jane has to take care of the sister and you do find out that like it was uh, you know one of the sisters, I mean, it's like a kind of surprise element to Baby Jane. I don't want to spoil it, but basically stuff happened in the past of Baby Jane. But that's a case where it's like somebody has been injured physically by an accident. This is a case where, yeah, it's being presented as he's mentally handicapped. And we don't learn until way later that he, yeah, that it wasn't from birth. Well, the entire, almost the entire movie, I just kept thinking, why don't you just make him a kid? Why don't you make him, like, a child? You could still do almost everything else that this movie is doing with, you know, the, the plot and the demon and whatever, and you you lose the, the baggage and the cringe from, you know, the depiction of a mentally disabled person. When, and I'll save it for when we talk about the end, because yeah. there's a lot to say about the finale. Like, once it got to the end, I was kind of like, okay, this is why they decided to make him mentally disabled, I can, it just was not done in anything approaching a good way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'll just jump in as well. I mean, yes to everything you guys are saying um, about it. But I mean, I also think there's like another layer in there that actually, you know, is really what sort of makes this maybe the most interesting is just how you get a sense of that this is some sort of a reflection of the artist, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, obviously I felt that, you know, the main character is like maybe a reflection that he, that he's sort of like saying something about himself within that. And um, there was something like interesting, very disturbing, obviously, but also like interesting and just like this, he's like this really innocent character who has like a hard time expressing himself, but yeah, he has this like really um, like sophisticated inner, life and inner dialogue you know in his mind so maybe there's something to be said there just in terms of like on a personal level with him obviously not knowing him at all but um maybe even like on an artistic level if you want to look for like a metaphor there i mean that's kind of you know interesting yeah i i wondered if getty saw himself i mean this would be taking it to a, a very extreme degree but it's it's entirely possible if he like saw himself as mentally handicapped or saw like a kinship with someone who was, or like, like you're saying, Layla, like if he saw it as a good metaphoric device, like, you know, he believed he was this 
tortured artist and so that he can't you know get out to the world because there's yeah i mean he's he's shooting it in his own mansion there are these like rants that the character will go on and particularly near the end there's like rants about family and you have the getty family in the backdrop of all of this Mm -hmm. and so i i just don't know yeah i i think there's some interesting psychological aspects going on i mean you know i i'm not one to believe necessarily that everything an artist makes is inherently like a representation of them. Like, you know, like that, a, that a character they created is there for them. You know what I mean? Like that, that that's always a stand in. Um, Cause you have all kinds of like horror directors or Cormac McCarthy or whoever, like who are creating terrific and terrifying characters. And it's not necessarily like their psyche, but in this case, I don't know. <laughs> like yeah. this might be, Andrew Getty distilled right here. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely moments that it feels like he he came at a crossroads and he could either write a manifesto or a screenplay, and he yeah. chose screenplay. <laughs> and yeah, there there are just these moments of rants that happen out of nowhere that it, it has the feeling of if you're at a party and you're having a chat with a complete stranger, and then you say something really innocent, and out of nowhere they go from zero to six hundred in just a complete fury. And you just have no idea where it came from. Just like, okay, you hate social services. I get it. Let's let's go get another smear off ice. Yeah, yeah, the 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 view on social services was all over the map in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know if it was over the all over the map. I thought it was basically pretty consistent that social services was presented as like the deep state. It was like <laughs> they're going to come and take your children yeah, and well, like. And I, it made me wonder, is like, did the Getty family deal with something like that? And that's where this is coming from? I, well, the reason I say it's all over the map is like, yeah, like the, the social service lady is like every time she's on the screen, like there's the music and the camera angle. So oh. it's like, she's a she's a bad person. But also the, the movie doesn't really, the, the movie is pretty clear that the brother is not great for Dennis right. either. Yeah. So it's kind of like, well, this social services should be taking yeah. Dennis and putting him somewhere where he's going to get better attention than, than Sean Patrick yeah. Flannery, which uh, not understanding how to deal with a well, disabled person, even though he's theoretically been taking care of him for decades. To, to give the movie some shred of credit it probably doesn't deserve, it's possible that since we're supposed to be viewing it through Frederick's eyes, that maybe the idea is that he views social services as a threat and bad, or he would, and that he also has problems with his brother. So it's like, it's basically... It's, like, wait, who's Frederick? Uh, oh, Dennis. I, Dennis. Dennis, sorry. Uh, Frederick is the actor, sorry, Dennis. So since we're viewing okay. it through Dennis's eyes that he could see being carted off to social services against his will as a bad thing. And then he also views his brother as negative in a lot of ways. So it's like, I could see it as being like both family and the state being essentially enemies to Dennis. It's not yeah, done well, but I could see that. Yeah, well, I think a little setup is important for that, too, because um, the the thing that elicits social services showing up is uh, Sean Patrick Flannery brings home a big old Oculus mirror that's, like, floor-to-ceiling big. <laughs> it's got, like, a, an, an archangel on the top of it or some sort of Antichrist figure. <laughs> and... Um, as you have on You know, this. as you do. And uh, it's a mirror that Dennis dreamed existed. 
Um, but they get into a huge fight because they want to put it in Dennis's room, and Dennis is like, but my hamsters live here. It's that old chestnut. And um, Sean Patrick Flannery raises a hand um, and violently reacts to it, and so his longtime girlfriend, Dina Meyer, calls social services, and then that's just kind of dropped, and social services shows up. Wait, is, is she the one who calls? I think, I think it's alluded I think that Justy's she filling in a gap, but it does make sense. I didn't the movie, okay. I don't think the movie I, tells I, I, us, but yeah, that would make sense. Okay, yeah, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't pick up that she did it, but th- that whole thing, like, I was just getting mad because, because like my, uh, my wife, like, she works with special needs kids, like for preschool and stuff like that, and she's going for like a special teaching license and everything. So I've learned a lot about how you're supposed to deal with that, with what she does. Like the idea, especially again, since he's theoretically been taking care of Dennis for all this time, you you should know better than to just out of the blue completely disrupt his environment like that. Like that is going to send that is going that that is such a bad idea. And so again, like I what you said kind of makes sense that you know if if this is through Dennis's eyes, he's not really viewing anyone in a positive light, which kind of goes along with the overall misanthropic tone of the movie. Mm. But it, it was I was just kind of like I don't know what we're supposed to make of all of this. Well, counterpoint: the stain of the mirror matched the stain in the room. <laughs> so, game set match there, Tim. Sorry. Yeah, that. Yeah, that whole series. That whole scene is pretty bizarre because it's like it seems like essentially a contrivance to create conflict because um, Sean Patrick Flannery's character is just like insistent. This mirror needs to go in here and we'll move all your other stuff. And it creates this problem. And then we he reveals to the fiance, I think, or no, they're not. She's not a fiance because she thinks she's going to get a girlfriend. That was another yeah. problem I had later. So reveals to the girlfriend that uh, he's trying to sell the house, or I guess reveals to the audience through her um, trying to sell the house. But then that element just gets completely dropped. And the whole, like, there's nothing else about mm-hmm. the house, nothing else. It's just it's just to get this mirror into the room so that, that uh, Dennis has evil mirror for the demon man to come through. And that's kind of all it is. It, if If demon man in dreams, though, does live in mirror... <laughs> Like, are you going into Charlie Day right now, Dusty? What's happening? A bit, yeah. Like, I don't. Like, does the demon actually live in the mirror if it's already existing in his yeah. dreams beforehand? I had like, a lot of questions about how the cadaver actually operated. Before we stray too far, since we we brought it up talking about the room, um, I wanted to I wanted to hear a little bit more from Layla because she made a note about the hamster thing being interesting, and I wanted I I was curious. What about like because I, I I had some thoughts about how the hamsters should have been utilized in the movie. So I, I'm curious what she thought was interesting about them. Um, well, actually, I just thought it was interesting that he had the hamsters and that there were all these like tubes of hamsters and that he called mm-hmm. them something. Do you remember he called them like he's like, no, you're gonna make me have to move my like not a terrarium oh, but yeah. he called it like but a terrarium yeah, for sure. hamsters oh he did call it something <laughs> and i, I just yeah. I, I just put that in the section of the comments that was for like random like side thoughts so i didn't and the hamsters any... also never come back into the plot they never do anything with them he also i don't think murders any even though he murders every other living thing he comes across 
And that was how I thought they should be utilized. Mm -hmm. Like, because they, they bring the hamsters in. Nothing is made of them other than he has them. And that's why he's upset. There's a mirror in the room now, or they're trying to move stuff in his room. Late, you know, once, once he starts acting out the influence of this demon cadaver and it starts telling him to kill things, like he starts with animals, like wouldn't the first thing be like kill your gerbils because one it's right there two that's a way you know in, in any other movie that is being written competently that's a way that you establish that internal conflict for yeah. the character because here are these camp hamsters that he has an affinity for a kinship for they're his pets and he's being told no you have to kill them that's the only way that you can become smart which is like the goal that they're giving him throughout this movie which again incredibly offensive <laughs> considering that you know what you're doing with this character um but it, it would at least create that conflict where in order to get the thing that in order to reach this goal you have to kill this thing that you love and instead it's like hey go find some random cat that'll work and it it just felt like a real missed opportunity if you're especially for how dark well, and you could even have the demon him. like kind of tow him into it even easier so it's like because you would have to make a jump from i'm going to kill one of my pets so killing a random cat or a neighbor cat obviously it's not going to have the same connection as killing your own personal pet but you could even do something like where one of the hamsters is sick and you've established that and you know and we all know it's sick and he knows it's sick and so then the demon's like you'll just be helping it dennis and like that's how you get the hooks into it. So I mean, again, this is such a small component of where everything else in this movie goes to. But I think this is a good point of like what Tim's raising and Layla's raising of like the weirdness of this hamster stuff. And it's just an element that's raised and then dropped. And right here, just kind of brainstorming of like, how could you use these elements you already established? There are many ways. There are things you could do with them that could advance the story and the plot, but they just don't. And so we have these just kind of like threads that go nowhere. Yeah. And it happens a lot yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Foreshadowing is not allowed in this movie. <laughs> it's just shadowing. It's just all shadowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, like, there are, like, that's the, I think that's something that's really frustrating is, like, there are things that, like, I want to look at and be like, oh, this is actually, like, really intricate the way it's set up but then you have all these other things where it's like you really miss the boat and it's like really weird to see both of those things in the same movie well like if i'm gonna be the one to like maybe defend the hamsters <laughs> for a moment i mean obviously yes <laughs> Uh, you know, it would have been nice to bring them back into it somehow but if you just look at it like as is as it was left and if you're looking at it from the perspective of, like, he's sort of, like, kind of relating to the main character, that, you know, the the hamsters are, like, the one thing that he cared about, and they kind of did get left, so in a way they sort of remained pure. It's, like, the one pure thing in the movie is the hamsters. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I don't feel like you guys are buying this. Well, no, no. I, I think that's. I think that's a really good point with that. It's it's something I I want to believe because there are so many shots around the tubes in general. Like I think they pushed a camera yeah. through one of the tubes in a very late '90s sort of style. That was, it's great. It was really wonderful. But yeah, I I would like to believe that that is true. 
when and and also to 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 be fair like you know we're all kind of like you know laughing at her like thought on it but really like this is the kind of movie where like any any interpretation is kind of valid because it's just so bizarre and there's so much going on and and as Layla has been saying it's so clear that this is like just everything coming out of the director's head like yeah, like it very well. Could oh yeah, be. there's that tons of thinking. Well, there's tons of connections. Yeah, they, I mean, you could also argue like the hamsters are to represent how Dennis is like trapped at this house and the way the hamsters are trapped in there. I mean, like I think there's a lot of things that you could pull out from it. It's just just like every other part of the movie. I think it's just there's so much happening. It's going in so many directions. A lot of these are dead ends. A lot of these are loose threads. Like I said, the thing with the house seems to be incredibly important in the first 15 minutes. And then it's just never mentioned again, really. And so it's, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to, I mean, he did go to film school, but, uh, and I'll save this once we get to another portion, but I, I mean, I think he had his strengths. I think there are things in here that are very impressive, mm-hmm. but I don't think writing was one of his strengths would be my takeaway. And so I think that's one of the issues. Uh, if we had a different script, this could have been a very different and more satisfying film. I think that's where I land on that. Yeah. But uh, well, we've we've dissected the first ten minutes, and we got an hour and thirty-seven minutes more of the movie to get oh, through. Oh God. <laughs> um, but no, actually, since you mentioned it, I did I did want to shift gears because we've we've talked a lot about like especially the beginning and the characterization and. and how problematic this movie is but like you said there are good things in it and so like if we want to shift gears and talk about like the reason why this is such like a bizarre oddity um well let's let's save the good things i'd rather get that closer to the end so we end on a little more of a positive note for andrew getty um because i think uh i just want to like i think one good uh one aspect that we could launch into is just any other weird stuff that we were hitting, this can be dialogue-based, this can be character-based, this can be scene-based. Uh, as I already kind of gave the overview of the movie, but just since this movie jumps around a lot and we're going to be jumping around, basic idea is Dennis has this demon who's trying to convince him to kill animals, then children, then people. If he does it, he'll finally be smart again. And that's that's Dennis's driving point. Uh, he doesn't really want to. He's very conflicted, but he does engage in murders throughout the movie. And that's kind of what the bulk of the movie is. A lot of stuff happens off screen. So for jumping around a little bit, that's that's the through line of what's happening. And then all kinds of weird stuff's happening. So dialogue, weird things. What else we want to touch on? Because Dusty, I know you had some uh, dialogue things you uh, you were yeah both, on. both yeah. Dusty and Layla mentioned the dialogue. Oh my god, yeah, I was hooked um, with the line "All the joie of Eve of a cancer patient," <laughs> a line that comes in like 15 seconds after the start, and it's <laughs> during um, he's talking about the carnies. Describe... Yeah, yeah, and it comes in a monologue that I could only describe as probably like a lit assistant's nightmare. That it's just... It was very my journal. Yeah, yeah. Live, oh my god, journal. it was very live, live journal. journal. That's what it was. Feeling chaotic. <laughs> listening to seven <laughs> pence or six pence none the, the richer. The crazy, the crazy thing about that line too, like, is because he says it and there are two carnival barkers and the one on the right is very much like that kind of 
whatever. Yeah. But the one on the left is actually being a carnival barker. Yeah. And so there's this disconnect over the di- like the, the monologue and what we're actually seeing. Yeah. But yeah, like the opening scene, there are just so many little things that I just kept wanting to pause and dissect because it's, um, so we're introduced to Dennis via a dream that he's having of him when he's younger with his mom and they're at a carnival at the Bonneville Salt Flats and they're just checking stuff out and there's like a lot of highfalutin dialogue to be lots uh, of narration in the first 10, 15 minutes, there is a ton of narration. Yeah. But uh, then they eventually get on to uh, an old-timey haunted house ride, which I still think the guy operating it was Udo no, Kier. I don't, it's, it's not... It's Michael uh, Berryman. It's, it's, oh, it yeah, is? Yeah, oh he's my just God. like in a hippie wig and stuff. Oh, that makes sense. Um, but they get on the ride. They ride it around. There's nothing inside. And he's just like, Mom, you should get your money back. And then she takes off her glasses and her eyes or mouths. And he wakes up. Hey, that part up was badass. I'm all for that part. No, that was great. It's, but it's also just like, what is... I, uh, I just want to know that, why. <laughs> that, act, that part actually made me laugh out loud. Because, <laughs> mostly because my friend Jason has sent me so many memes that involve people's mouths being in their eyes. That... <laughs> <laughs> that when that happened in the movie, I just lost it. I just started laughing because I was like, ah, it's this fucking thing. <laughs> but but keep in mind that this movie is like 15 years old yeah. or whatever oh, yeah. when they yeah. filmed it or more. So like maybe they were the originators of the meme. Of- well, I, I know it, it could be. I know it, yeah. This is trailblazing. <laughs> I, know, I know that image at least goes back as far as Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics because the Corinthian has that. He has uh, eye mouths. Um, so I don't know if it goes back further than that, but yeah, uh, I mean, I think some of that's like good stuff for, uh, digging into like the horror elements for me, a couple of the dialogue bits. So there's this, uh, her character name is as dusty has it as his name for this podcast is ice cream Sue. And they go to this kind of a little like ice cream shop. And it's this girl who works there that Dennis is interested in. He goes there. I, I, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but I think to to describe the ice cream place better, it's an occasional bikini ice cream parlor. Yeah, I don't know what the dress code is it's, there, but it is it not is, OSHA. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very confounding. Well, so yeah, so they go there a couple times, and like one of the bits of dialogue is Dennis saying, "Nice to see you," and she says, "Of course, it's nice to see me. I'm outlandishly hot." And this is dialogue that exists in this film. Later, way later in the movie, there's stuff with video cassettes where Dennis is getting these uh, like DVDs on taxidermy and forensics and stuff because he's murdering people and he's like doing stuff in the basement. And his brother like buys into his bullshit explanation like way too easily. Like, oh, they switched the tapes. Oh, well, okay. But so then later the brother ends up coming across the guy who Dennis claimed the tapes were switched with. And there's just some choice dialogue there where this actor, I don't know who he is, but I've seen him. He's a character actor. I've seen him and stuff, but he just says, let me just put Dennis's books there on the edge of your table. Like that's the exact quoted dialogue. And I'm watching it like, who talks like that? No one says that. That's like a stage direction. No one says that out loud. And then, 
that actually struck i actually had like got the feeling that that was something that was improvised like that that felt like something like an ad lib from like a studio comedy or something or or he's like reminding the actor of like i need this blocking now i this has to go here um but then at and then so once the brother kind of is figuring out oh wait dennis's tapes were the taxidermy ones he tells the bookshop guy like Pete, you got to call the cops. And the guy says, I don't want to. And that's that's it. There's no explanation. He just gives us like whiny, I don't want to. So I, there, you might have some other good choice dialogue moments, but those are the ones that popped out to me of like, I'm just watching and just like, I don't know why these are being written. I don't know why they're being said. <sighs> I didn't really have any any dialogue that stuck out. Did, did you, Layla? Because you mentioned the dialogue in the notes too. Um, I mentioned the dialogue, but I didn't like take note of any specific lines, but I did think it was interesting because he was all about like these cheap big words, these 50 cent big words that my brother uses. Um, and so the dialogue would shift between like that versus like, I don't know. It was just weird because sometimes I felt like the dialogue really oddly worked. And then other times it was like super clunky and weird and offensive and like, like kind of laughable in a way. Um, so it was just, it was interesting. Yeah, I noticed, especially towards the beginning, uh, what was it? The 50 cent words. That was that was a phrase that got used a lot where with like his brother using big words and like a lot of characters get criticized for that throughout the movie. And then there's a point where for some reason he's telling he's doing a stand up routine to his evil doppelganger in the mirror because it's already after the mirror him is like doing stuff on its own so he's like doing a stand-up routine and they they start there's a thing about like you tell jokes like you know telling jokes that everyone can understand and get your brother tells jokes that only he understands or something so like there's very much this like resentment boiling underneath like the whole movie and it really comes through in like the, the dialogue that you just mentioned about people using big words yeah. and stuff. Well, yeah, there's resentment toward the brother, toward family in general. There's resentment toward the brother's girlfriend, so like kind of a significant other of a family member. There's resentment toward women mm. and toward social services. So, yeah, it's, there's just all kinds of anger on display without any clarity as to why at times and then eventually we find out some information that kind of clarifies why dennis would be angry to some degree but then there's also that is this the character dennis is this getty coming through because one aspect that i didn't touch on early on is that so because we've been like reading into this of like how much of this is andrew getty's psyche which as i said you know isn't always fair to put that on an artist i don't feel but According to a pro, uh, this is from Wiki. According to a post-production producer who had worked on the film and a friend of Getty, when he was young, he would have these really powerful, sick, twisted dreams, and they were so shocking to him that he didn't think they came from him, and so that the idea of the film uh, came about like because he thought he could be a storyteller who created these dreams, and hence the title, the storyteller, for the, you know the original title of the film. And so, and then the Son of Sam stuff was taken as well. So Getty had like dark, disturbing dreams as a kid that he thought weren't coming from him. So that right there is like, well, that's Dennis. So that's at least a starting point. 
But yeah, going back to what you're talking about, Tim, of like this, like anger and resentment, it's hard to not wonder if this is, you know, the author shining through. Well, it's, I, it's hard to, if it were directed at a specific thing, it would be easy. I, I don't know, because like, there is all this resentment and it's very, like, there's a very misanthropic view overall, but there's no, like, clear target. Like, there are points where I kind of started thinking, it, it, it at points it reminded me of, you know, when you go onto, like, you know, Reddit, like, horror forums, like, no sleep, and, like, you know, people are just writing stories. Like, you can always tell when a dude got turned down by his crush, because, like, they'll just, like, write these, like, really misogynistic, terrible, like, pieces of horror where it's just, like, Ah, I'm going to mutilate this woman because no one will touch my dick. And it's really bad. And th- and there were times where I was like wondering if he was going down a route where this is him just like working out anger at his family or something. But it's so all over the board. Like, I don't know. Like, if, if it were just like resentment at his family, I think it would be easier to say, like, yep, this is how Getty actually felt. But there are so many different things flying around. Like, it, it, it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's all how, there are a lot of elements of Dennis that feel like it probably could be him. Because when he starts killing people, too, at one point when he says, like, he doesn't want to do anymore, the demon likens it to, you're going to go through withdrawal. And... Getty being a meth addict, like that makes sense. So there are a lot of things that point to, oh, this could be a stand-in for him, but then there's just, it goes, it branches off in so many different directions. Like, I mean, maybe he is just angry at everything and this is all him just funneling all that into the character, but it's just so scattershot that it's really, really difficult to to see clearly that this is really his viewpoint on everything. Yeah. It's trying to think of a good way to say this. It's, it's definitely a movie that makes you feel gross while you're watching it. And weirdly enough, it's not a lot of the horror things that make you feel that way. A lot of it for me is the stuff that feels just too personal and just too, angry for the sake of angry because we're not really setting up a lot of these characters as like dennis's brother is not super established as a like a deep-seated misogynist despite the fact that he is a misogynist and does a lot of terrible things so when when like these i guess just really shitty screeds start coming out of these characters mouths it's just kind of it feels less like character development and more like therapy via screenwriting Mm -hmm. and it's just it feels really weird yeah i think you know for me too that's another thing there there is definitely a vibe on this movie where you feel like it's disturbing in a way that like transcends like the movie you know like i was gonna say at first that i almost feel like i watched like the video from the ring or something and like in seven days like something (laughs) like something's gonna happen to me now or something like what is this cursed video (laughs) you said in the notes you thought like this is something you felt like you shouldn't be seeing Yeah, it kind of gives off that vibe, you know, but um, Mm -hmm. I think also there's another layer to it, too, in terms of just like, there's a sadness there for me, I I find it sort of a sad movie, you know, because it really like, I don't know, maybe it's just this like, the terror comes from like this 
feeling of being trapped in this like mind or mental state you know that you can't get out of kind of thing and and i think that's just an overall kind of Mm -hmm. sad point of view and maybe that's something of what he was trying to say in general i don't know if it's speaking to mental illness or just you know i don't i don't know but that was kind of the vibe that i i got and one of the the only line I did actually write down, I'm looking at my notes here, is uh, when you were talking about the dreams, is a dream is a story I tell myself, right? Which I thought was kind of interesting. Because it really, and I guess it's framed all as a dream, like starting with the fun house ride from the beginning towards the end. I don't want to, I don't know if we're doing spoilers, but at the end. Oh, the yeah, movie. we'll we'll dig into spoilers. Yeah, I mean, so on that... Um... That is a good line. And like, that struck me. I was like, that's a really good, like, that's how a kid would, would think of a dream like that, like in a, in another movie, that would be a really cool line. Mm -hmm. But like, and I mean, it it is a cool line. It's just like, by being in this movie, it gets kind of drowned out by everything else that's going on. Yeah. and, And what you're alluding to Layla there of that, the entire movie operates in kind of a dream space. Uh, we talked about the mother with eye mouths, and when basically they, they go on this, um, you know, little haunted house ride and they go inside and it's just blackness and the kid feels like they've been ripped off. Cause it's like, you know, he says like, you know, there's no buzzers, no, you know, scary snakes and spiders. Like, so they basically, jumping out. yeah. So they basically just like went through darkness. Now, like even that in of itself is kind of like a creepy idea that if you went into a haunted, like I could see some, people would be pissed, but I could see people going through it from like a psychological point of like, Oh, this is death. This is nothingness. Like there's nothing scarier than that. Like, I mean, you could make an argument <laughs> for that, but I think it kind of works to set the movie up of like, Oh, that's unsettling and weird. And then mm-hmm. the kids say, no, we got ripped off. And, you know, um, he says something about like that, the, uh, you know, that the, the, there was nothing to the ride or it was junk or something. I don't know. And when mom comes over with eye mouths, she says, what makes you think the ride's over? What makes you think it's ever going to end? And then the guy like wakes up, presumably, but then there's all these like in and out of dream moments throughout the entirety of the movie, all the way to the end. So the entire thing operates with a kind of dream logic, which uh, I don't want to put you totally on the spot, Layla. Um, I could have given you some heads up on it, but but I am curious of your take, because one of the reasons I thought it made sense to bring you on is because I know you're like a pretty big like David Lynch and Twin Peaks fan. I know you like horror, but you also like that. And Lynch, I'm not the biggest Lynch fan. I, I think some of his stuff's fantastic. I think some of it's like, eh, I don't know about that one. But I, I think he's at least always very interesting and I've seen everything he's done. I'm just curious, like this movie is operating in similar ways as of things that Lynch attempts. I wonder if you have a view on like why Lynch gets away with it or gets away with it more often and better and that this one usually doesn't. I think sometimes it does, but I just wonder as a Lynch fan, if you have anything on that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, yeah, I think it's interesting because I was actually thinking that this movie reminds me more of John Carpenter. Like it totally okay. reminded me of In the Mouth of Madness. Like yeah, a lot. I could see that. Uh, just in terms Ooh. of the way it's like this guy who's kind of like trapped in this madness that he can't get out of, you know, that's kind of what I felt he was trying to say. Um, with Lynch, I mean, I guess 
a lot of it is sort of like this dream logic. Um, and I think he talks a lot about like, he kind of speaks to like underlying, you know, trauma. Um, and maybe there's a little bit, bit of that here as well, I guess, if you look at the fact that like, you know, he was beat over the head and pushed down the stairs as a child. And he's like, you messed up my brain. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the worst thing you can do to a person or, or something along yeah. those lines. So, um, but in terms of why, you know, one works more than the other, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really want to want to speak to that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Lynch has made a lot of movies over a long period of time. He, you know, I guess Getty did also go to film school, but, um, you know, I don't know, two different people, two different approaches. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it could even just be a, it's kind of like the the adage, you have to know the rules in order to break them. Like, I feel like Lynch just probably just has a a better understanding of how storytelling works. So he knows where you can get away with breaking or abandoning the rules and where you can't. So even as dreamlike and weird as Lynch's movies can be, there's the sense that, like, at the very least, Lynch understands what is going on and knows how to keep things consistent even if from the audience's perspective things are just kind of like bizarre and happening in these all these weird ways it it still kind of feels more consistent most of the time like the lynch that works i think there's this consistency to it where with this i feel like the dream logic almost kind of works as a way to avoid having to explain things that don't make sense Because one thing that I was really unsure of, and I don't know if anyone has, maybe, maybe I missed something, maybe someone else picked something up before, as we're getting into the home stretch of the movie, there's a point where Sean Patrick Flannery comes into the bedroom. He's in a robe. He tells Dennis to go take a bath. And then like the next scene, we see Sean Patrick Flannery. He is waking up in in bed at his girlfriend's and the girlfriend thinks like, cause he's like, Oh, I overslept. I need to get back. And the girlfriend is like, wait, didn't you already go to check on him? Didn't you tell him to take a bath? And he's like, no. And I was just like, okay, so what happened? Like, did like, did Dennis see something that wasn't there? Was that like a manifestation for Dennis's behalf? Did the girlfriend right. have a dream for no reason because we haven't been in the girlfriend's head at all this movie so it's like it didn't make sense to just drop us into her dream and it was such a mundane thing like i was just like why are you trying to trip us up with this thing in particular so i don't know if i missed something i I I like exactly reaction where i didn't know what was trying to be accomplished with that bit my best guess was that the girlfriend was in like the dream space or that all these characters are like in some kind of dream reality. And so, cause like you have these characters in bed and we've had Dennis in bed. So possibly it's like they're entering and exiting this dream space, something, but again, none of this is very well defined. So I don't know. And that can kind of make sense given some of the stuff we see in the final stretch. But again, like it, it, it just feels kind of a departure from everything else. And where I feel like the, 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 
I because I agree the movie is very much relying on kind of like a dream logic, but I feel like this is an example where the dream logic is being relied on as a crutch as opposed to like something meant to to underline like the horror that we're witnessing. Sure. Well, that that gives us a good segue because we should delve into some of the stronger elements of the movie. And I think that that would be the horror elements and a lot of the visuals at play and a lot of the dream aspects at play. I know those are the things that work the best for me. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the things that would pop out to most casual viewers, like like the only things you can latch on to of like, well, wait, this is okay. This part. Um, Whereas, you know, everything else you're, you know, kind of just drowning in. So what, uh, what are some of our favorite elements of just the horror and special effects aspects? Because this was made for four to $6 million and it looks really good. I, I mean, I, I think the horror elements for the money that it was made for and for being like a homegrown effort, for being something that's not like a studio effort, I think it looks pretty solid. And Layla, I think you saw that he designed some of this stuff. Yeah, I just did like a, you know, a quick Google search on him. And um, I don't know, I came across that he he was into animatronics. And that's why there are animatronics in the movie, I guess, and that he made them himself. And I did think that that was one of the more effective uh, things about the movie. I thought those animatronics, especially when he went into that diner or dinner place, whatever that was, the creepy band that was playing. Yeah, monsoons. Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. Monsoons discount pizza or something? Yeah. That uh, was I. That was terrifying, and I hated it. And it should have its own yeah. movie, or like make a Five Nights at Freddy's game set yeah. there. Like yeah. those, and if and 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 that's cool. I didn't know that he built those animatronics himself. Like kudos to him then, because if like that that sets a mood. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need, you don't need to do anything else. You just walk into that restaurant, you see those animatronics, and you're immediately like, oh fuck. Yeah. When, and did he did he do not just the animatronics, but did you see if he did some of the like effects work? Like, did he help design? Um, there's that a lot I didn't of other... see, but okay. I mean that. But yeah, I mean the ending was also you know with all those puppets and the stop motion and whatever was going on there. Oh. I mean that was pretty good. Yeah. I mean it's pretty creepy. <laughs> my my guess is that he would at least have had a a significant hand in a lot of that stuff, even if he wasn't like the guy doing it all. Yeah, and you almost yeah. think like it would have been cool to see him just do like a full like creepy animatronic movie. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, my my note was that I think he should have been somebody should have made him a horror production designer and let him do nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. he doesn't get to direct or write or anything else, like just point him toward the monsters yeah. and let him go. Well, yeah, that in, in top sorry, go on. That's go on. <laughs> No, you, you, no, Dusty, sorry. Um, just sticking with monsoons real quick. The thing I loved about it is subconsciously it sets such a horrifying tone because it's like, where are the video games? Where's the other entertainment? Who's going to this place to watch an animatronic <laughs> band to have pizza? And, but also like all of the, um, all the waiters and waitresses just like casually doing the same exact motion to lead you up because he just walks into a bathroom stabs a guy blood ends up on the camera and then he dumps the body out a fucking window (laughs) god damn it and did anyone else (laughs) dennis is good at hiding bodies (laughs) (laughs) 
So, yeah, I mean, obviously that was, Ugh. and that was probably the most effective, like, murder <laughs> sequence in the movie. Because Yeah, it was. It, it was absolutely kind of weird was. because there are a lot of great, like, horror money shots in this movie, but, like, they kind of cut corners. I mean, you mentioned this, Dusty, um, a lot of the other kills, but that one in the bathroom, it was, like, really quick and brutal and efficient. I don't think it was like, for me, it wasn't like a satisfying kill. If we're just approaching it as from, as a horror fan, because the, the drill one, which we can talk about coming up, that one is much more of like, that's what I came to see. Like, you know, it was, if I'm being it was more, it was more, I just, it, the, the kill in the bathroom was really unexpected. Oh yeah. And like, there, and it's so almost it, played like, just, like a joke. Because the dialogue yeah, like, right before was... that is the brother or the girlfriend saying something about him being so gentle or him being so shy right now or some it's yeah. something to counteract it. And then there's this harsh cut to him just stabbing a dude in a bathroom. And it's and it's set up really well. In addition to that dialogue almost turning into a punchline, like you have like everyone has been saying, like the restaurant itself just sets this tone. And it's like this really creepy, like subconscious unsettling tone. And then like all at once, it's like the balloon gets popped out of Mm -hmm. nowhere. And it just like shifts from this like really subtle, eerie, creepy, atmospheric thing to all of a sudden slasher blood and guts. Well, not guts, but like blood splattering everywhere. So it was, it was a really effective, I thought kind of bait and switch. And it's, it's kind of, it's not too dissimilar to stuff that Lynch sometimes does. Lynch will yeah. do those kind of turn on a dime moments. I'm not saying that this guy did it nearly as well, but I, I'm wondering if he, you know, viewed Lynch as an influence with all the dream stuff that's going on in this, I would think it'd be hard for him not to have. Um, but yeah, what about some of the other horror bits that we uh, really liked? Well, just going back to the, the subconscious atmospheric creepiness of the restaurant, did it bother anyone else that they just had paper plates? <laughs> paper plates as, plastic like, utensils like it's this it, you know I, I, yeah that, restu- like, that restaurant is not operating legally nothing about that place is fine because like you know you have waiters and waitresses like they're being served they're being led to tables and like they have they have the, everything on the table so i was just like okay whatever it's a restaurant and when he picked it up and just like stabbed it through i was like wait what <laughs> And yeah. for some reason, that really got to me, and yeah. I don't know why. Look, Tim, if you raise minimum wage for tipped servers, that's just what's going to happen. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, you're 100 percent right. It's, it's reality ruins this movie. If he just stays in these weird dreamlike areas and it just floated that way with like the minimal dialogue, this could have been really goddamn interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's I, I think we're all getting closer to talking about the last five minutes. Yeah. Well, so, uh, I, I mean, I do want to throw out some other horror moments, so yeah, feel yeah. free to pile on with, uh, you know, what you thought of these. But I, I don't want them to be overlooked. So there's some opening stuff with, like, camera tricks and where, like, photography's, like, being blended and things. And there's some claymation. There's just some neat stuff that's happening on a very kind of, like, short film, experimental film level that I thought was kind of cool and set uh, a good mood early on for some dream imagery. Um, There's the zipper skin suit scene, which I thought was fantastic. So disturbing. I mean, the movie starts off. Yeah. The movie starts off so strong, which is why it kind of is so disappointing that it 
heads the way it does. Yeah, basically yeah, that, the, uh, the, the cadaver guy within one of Dennis's dreams, like Dennis is naked from the waist up and the cadaver guy like throws him onto the bed or turns him over on the bed. And I don't know if anybody got this sense. It's been a while since I watched yeah. it. But I felt the way that was staged was to make it look like Dennis is about to be raped. Um, I, was, I, I feel the way yeah, it was shot. And I and I was like, and I again, I hadn't watched this for several years. So I was like, does the movie go there? And they don't. They, um, the, uh, the cadaver guy ends up, I think it's meant to be like a metaphoric rape is the idea. Mm. Because the cadaver guy puts like basically a big metal zipper down his back down Dennis's back and then like opens up his body and essentially climbs into him. Um, and uh, you know, and it's like, he's wearing him as a skin suit and then evil within. Yeah. And then like later in the movie, we see like this dual image of him and you know, like the, the evil demon guy is kind of taking him over, but, but just on a pure horror level, I think that stuff works super well. Um, so that's an early one. There's another early one in a dream where like a spider is attacking him and it like drains his yeah. body of fluid and they have some kind of like puppet thing that's like shrinking down and like that they had filled up with fluid or something. That one that was felt super very cool. 80s effects. Yeah. Um, there is the naked girl crab walk. <laughs> Everything leading up to that was bullshit. And then the actual crab walk was kind of fucking amazing. Yeah. I'm the same way. I was getting really, I was getting really annoyed with like the way they handled that scene with her like stripping and talking to him. Yeah. But then that happened. And I was like, oh, okay. I all right. This is wow. Yeah. Like they better have paid that actress so much fucking money, and no matter what they paid her, it wasn't enough. It, just double it. Give the carrot. Give Ice Cream Sue a last name, and fucking. <laughs> Fucking give her a million dollars, if not more. God damn it. That was another sort of semi-Carpenter-esque moment, I guess. It's sort of like the thing, in a way. Maybe. Am I cutting, oh, I'm yeah. cutting out? Oh, I yeah. Think. Oh, yeah. Agreed. The, uh, hang on. Did you, did, you, did you say something else? You kind of broke up a little uh, bit. No, where... I just said about the thing. Just like that it was kind of like a Carpenter Yeah, moment, the right? spider walk. The crab spider woman walk yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so the other couple, like, big showy moments, uh, there's a part that I think works pretty well where the girlfriend comes to the house and she see, she hears a baby crying and she finds, like, a bassinet and it looks like there's a baby in it and then it ends up being Dennis's head and he, like, comes out of the bassinet or, like, baby carriage and like so it's like he's a baby morphing into like a person like they they did it all like in real camera effects like they hollowed out you know like a baby carriage or something but that was like an unexpected and creepy moment that um mm-hmm. and i think all this stuff like works really well especially considering for me especially considering the low budget you know pretty low budget that it was um i mean there are horror movies that have been made for less but i think they the, the stuff looks good they're pulling it off. There's cool, interesting things we haven't seen on screen before in a horror movie. And uh, it works really well for me. And then we come to Zombie Puppet Show. And I will leave that open to the floor. Yeah. I talked about a lot of these other ones, but let's let's dig into Zombie Puppet Show. So as a lead into that, 
there's the drill. Yes, because so it so and, and it's kind of part and parcel, but that was that was the point where because all these other things were like okay these these are kind of cool horror moments but they felt so isolated you know within all of the other things we've you know been talking about don't work and are bad so for, so for most movie i was just kind of like eh, this you know this this really isn't for being like this bizarre thing a millionaire recluse made it it's really playing things pretty safe and just kind of, it's just kind of bad. But then, you know, after after Dennis jumps out of the baby carriage and, and stabs the girlfriend, she's not dead yet. He sits her down. He drills into her head. He makes, like, a hole on the top and a hole, like, in the back or the side or something, right? Yeah. And then takes, while she's still alive, like, we still see her eyes moving and everything, takes a fire extinguisher sticks the fire extinguisher into the hole in the back of the head, turns it on and just like shoots all of the brain and matter out the top and hollows her head out. And it was just such a brazen, just bonkers bit of body horror and like, like gore. I was just like, whoa, (laughs) like it it was like the movie, the movie flipped the switch and like now it's at 11 and I like out of nowhere, I was just like, holy shit. Yeah. It's especially to to compare and contrast another scene that Dina Meyer was in uh, their very first dinner between her and Sean Patrick Flannery, where they're having their first dinner argument of many. (laughs) And she is framed in the center with, like, an outdoor pizza fire behind her, just, like, flames going around her head, and it's just like, this shrew's gonna ruin this guy, that sort of, like, (laughs) shitty fucking tone. And, like, halfway through the movie, you get that, and you're like, great, I'm glad you you got a C-plus in TCOM 101, good job. And then... And then he switches to that shit at the end, and it's like... (laughs) like where the fuck was this an hour ago (laughs) yeah like we sat through an hour and 20 minutes of all this other bullshit and now now we have like like brain uninhibited horror like yeah it's it's so weird that the only two tones in this movie are super super safe and by the book and then the other is fuck it we'll do it live (laughs) And, and then we find out he, the reason he's because and because I, I wasn't thinking along these lines. I was just so like kind of like taken back by like they just showed a guy hose out someone's head with a fire yeah. extinguisher. Um, I, I didn't put together that it was going to be to make a ventriloquist dummy. So then when Sean Patrick Flannery gets back to the house and we see like Dennis sitting there with with the the girlfriend on his lap like doing a routine i was just like oh shit like this just got real dark and creepy and then it keeps going as as more and more of those dead bodies turn out to now be yes yes all the all the dead bodies that he had accumulated throughout the film and that he had been keeping in the basement and building shit and his brother just been kind of like oh it smells weird down there and he's building stuff and he's getting all these books on taxidermy. Oh well, moving on. Like <laughs> so, he's just been letting this go on. Carpentry smells like. Yeah. So he lets yeah. this go on. For, I mean, you uh, smell couches for you know, like there's I don't something, know. Weeks. There's something really twisted about the fact too that he was like, oh, maybe he's like getting like carpentry skills. 
Like he's gonna be a carpenter. I'm so proud of him. And then like <laughs> You know, a lot of people don't give vocational rehabilitation that much credit, but So so yeah, so the It was it was kind of adorable. Yeah. Like in another movie, like it's kind of adorable. Like the brother wanted to believe in him so much <laughs> that he was just like, "Oh yeah, he's going to be a professional carpenter." <laughs> well, and the thing because... the thing is that shit tracks because when he's walking into the fucking corpse puppet show and Dina Meyer is sitting on Dennis's lap, dressed in like some some Punch and Judy shit, he smiles. Yeah. <laughs> He smiles before sitting down, just like, oh, they're getting along. This is going to be nice. <laughs> well, so, uh, so yeah, so, so the brother comes back and uh, people have been disappearing, like just random people that they, you know, like waitresses and <laughs> concierges and stuff. And there's a Valet. really, there's valets. There's a really weird line too, where the girlfriend says something like, about all their friends disappearing. And I was like, hang on. These are like your friends. Like, I mean, not to like discredit, like the, the people that you, one of them was his psychiatrist. So I think that's cheating to call him your friend. It just just seemed weird. It's like, you know, cause like Dennis was murdering like acquaintances at best and not, unless they just don't have friends. I don't know. But, but yeah, so basically cat next door we're friends with. I haven't seen that cat forever. (laughs) So De- our, um, hasn't been eating his lasagna lately. <laughs> so the the brother John comes back and he goes down in the basement. John Arbuckle. <laughs> uh, yes, let's let's just I, let's just do twenty minutes of, of Garfield bits, Tim. Let's let's just keep it um, up. Fun fact. <laughs> Sorry, I'm done. It just worked out. Fun fact. I honest to God forgot that character's name was John. <laughs> we keep calling him the so brother. I, I could have guessed and still been yeah. right. <laughs> All right, so there's Dennis sitting there with Nermal, and um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so John comes back, goes down the basement, finds some kind of sign that says like that there's a show downstairs, and yeah, the brother has the girlfriend propped up, and it it appe- initially appears like they're doing some kind of play, and that she's like pretending to be a ventriloquist dummy. The brother ends up being like literally glued to this chair with some kind of like super glue or something. It's actually kind of an effective, creepy, weird thing because he like realizes he can't get out of it. But yeah, as hurts. as everyone's saying, there's just tons and tons of corpses there that are being like presented as like marionettes and things. But one of the re- revelations that comes super late in the movie, the movie's like an hour and a half maybe hour and 47 minutes um i was i was gonna say were you counting i don't i don't think it's that late i I think it's like an an hour 38 but some of that's credits oh i'm talking about the runtime of the movie as a whole sorry um no i'm saying i think the movie's like an hour 38 but but anyway it doesn't matter but so it's like around an hour 20 so like pretty late in the game the brother reveals to the girlfriend oh, well, Dennis wasn't always mentally handicapped and I was like goofing around once and I shoved him and he fell down the stairs. No, no, he didn't shove him. He fucking punched him. Well, but, but, like, yeah, he, but he, I mean, he's, the when he initially tells the story, it's like, I was being a dumb kid. That I'm just, that's the important part. So whether or not he punches him, I don't know. But the story he tells is basically we were like roughhousing. I wasn't trying to like hurt him. He accidentally falls down the stairs 
And then he was, and he also reveals that Dennis was a prodigy and that he was this like great mathematic math whiz mathematician or something. But then after that, he couldn't even read anymore. So this comes an hour and 20 minutes into the movie, which is way late for that revelation. That should be like up front. And then like, we know the guilt the brother is facing the whole movie because we get that revelation so late. And then 10 minutes later, we get the real revelation during the puppet show. Would anyone would like to explain what the real revelation is? I mean, I'd love to <laughs> go ahead, Dusty. Um, so the, there's a, at some point the, the demons like, Oh, you got to kill kids for me now. And so he does. And so these two child corpses are marionetted. So like they are praying at bed and then it is revealed that uh, John takes a baseball bat while it appears as though Dennis is praying and hits him so hard that he tumbles down the stairs. Well, and not just, and and this is where I don't know how much we're supposed to take at face value because Sean Patrick Flannery does say he punched him when he's telling the story to the to the girl. No, I, I believe, he, but my yeah. my point was it was initially presented as roughhousing versus what okay. the later thing is is like this is meditation. Well, th- that he was intentionally trying to harm him, and it says it's bec- that the claim within the play is that it's because he was jealous of him being like yeah. a prodigy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I it, it's it's not necessarily clear how much of that we're supposed to take at face value, but it you know it's ideally if you play the movie right it doesn't matter, mm. but like be, again because like this is coming so late in the game it just it's kind of like this just major whiplash. But, well, the final stretch gets super weird too because um, Dennis has been as we said presented as mentally challenged. Um, and he is acting like, you know, basically a, a, a first run at Rain Man acting class, if, uh, if I had to uh, explain it. And then the demon is telling him, the demon who he sees as himself in the mirror at points acts essentially normal and speaks normally. And the demon at some point kind of like switches places with him. Um, but yeah, in the, in, in the end though, when he's putting on this puppet show, he's talking as though he's okay. And his brother doesn't even recognize that his brother doesn't recognize that his like body language is completely different. His brother doesn't recognize that his speech pattern is different. It doesn't recognize that what he's saying is different. So you're in this sort of like dream reality then of like, wait, the brother should see this. And then at the end, cops come in. And they grab him and pull him out. And it feels like what we've been seeing is possibly not real. And that Dennis just like, like that basically there was no puppet show that they that the cops just came in and found a bunch of just like corpses in the basement, but we don't actually see that. So it's like, well, wait, because yeah. the ultimately the brother shoots himself, you know, in the head, like to atone I for do- his sins. I do think there is there is actually like some kind of attempt at a puppet show, but it's not what we see because there is a great shot amongst all of this because when the brother first gets there and you know he's sitting with the girlfriend on his lap and like using her as a puppet, like she's all dressed up, like looks like kind of that like, like vaudeville stage makeup and like everything's going on. At one point, the camera cuts back to a close up of the girlfriend sitting on his lap. 
and there's no makeup. It's not done up nearly as well. You can see his fingers kind of sort of poking out of her mouth and like her eye, like, and it's, it is creepy as fuck. Like it just like kind of, because again, we're seeing this, like, you know, we know they're all corpses, but everything's like done up kind of for lack of a better word, nice, you know, you know, it looks kind of, professional and like a, a stage show and everything but then you get that close-up of the girlfriend and all of a sudden it's back it's there's you know there's no guise to what's going on it's just straight terrifying yeah. and like horrific um so i i, I feel like well there's some stuff the in, way i read well, it, i'll just just for anyone listening like there's some stuff in the ending that absolutely can't be real because like the zombies like start attacking um john attached to the chair and also this woman who like the social service lady had her head grafted on a big spider puppet like a gigantic like it size spider puppet and it starts walking and like coming off of its strings it's like there's definitely stuff where we're ending into a reality that's not you know our reality but it gets real like fast and loose in terms of where the lines are but what'd you have tim yeah well, I would say my reading of it was like they probably he probably had like corpses of like the kids like leaned up against beds or something like there was probably like the corpses displayed in a way to like tell the story. Yeah. There just wasn't the the movement that we see he him yeah. present. Yeah, but it's it's also easily the best five minutes of the movie. There's so just the way it's presented oh, yeah. is it's. Like, it, there's elements of Tim Burton in it. There's, like, some Ray Harryhausen sort of stuff going on. Mm. There's some Cronenberg. It's, like... But it, but, it it ta- but it takes all the best parts of all of those. And for that to happen out of nowhere after a movie has really kind of eschewed all of that, it's it's so fucking good. It's really goddamn good. And it's... And at the very end, it clicks that this is, like, supposed to be a revenge story. Yeah. And and the one and there's there's a really cool idea within it because and, and this was one of the things I was ready to complain and make fun of the movie about because like there's one restaurant that they go on all their dates <laughs> to and everything and, and everything. But then like I realized at the end and this is where like I I feel like there are elements in this movie where it's very deliberately and intricately set up. Because, like, the whole thing that Dennis is doing at the end is he wanted to, because of the brain damage he suffered when his brother attacked him with a bat, like, all of the familiar things he knew in the world were now gone for him. So he wanted to do that to his brother as a form of revenge. He wanted to take all of the familiar people and things in his mm-hmm. life and remove them from him. And that's a really interesting and, like, terrifying idea for, like, revenge. And, and that was where, like, throughout the entire movie, I was like, you're making the kid. Why does he have to be mentally disabled? And when it got to the end, I was like, that's the reason. That's the reason Getty, you know, that's, that's the reason you make the kid disabled. It's just that you did not know how to handle that yeah. at all so that you could build to this moment at the end without having, you know, nearly an hour and a half of, like, offensive cringe there's also a line in there um in that closing bit that kind of circles us back a little bit to the question of getty uh so dennis says when you damage someone's brain you darken their whole world nothing remains familiar family loses familiarity 
And I was like, is this Getty? Is this like, is he really mad at his brother? Did something happen? Um, like that line in particular and the way it was delivered and just kind of the like sincerity of that moment um, made that kind of question of how much of this is the author pop up again for me. But, uh, but yeah, so that's our big climactic finale in this movie. And then basically Dennis is carted away and it's implied, you know, that the demon was in control, that he's like not in control of his own body, that the demon was murdering people. Um, I, I was surprised that the demon just, uh, the cadaver as he's called just totally like drops out at the end. Like that you have Michael Berryman in the movie and he doesn't show up as some kind of like super creepy monster at the end or do something specific. He just kind of like, he just drops out and it's like, Oh, that, that kind of sucks. Cause he has a significant presence in the first uh, half or so. But um, yeah, so that's kind of like the big key horror moments of it. And I think we, you know, we'll talked about how they work the best of anything in the film and um, are the most interesting. So that leads us to, would you recommend The Evil Within? No, no, I wouldn't. I mean, there's such a... There's such a specific thing that a bad movie has to be if you want it to be a midnight watching or if you want to watch it with friends. And there's just there's just too much offensive stuff in here to be able to have a fun evening with friends. Um, yeah. Because the movie's yelling at you. There's very cringy and just offensive stuff happening on such a regular basis that any sort of running jokes you might be making with friends aren't going to last. There's no... It's too grounding in those terrible moments for it to really be a fun watch. I I think if you're a fan of things that are just so weird, it kind of has to be seen. Or if you're a a historian of the Getty family, then yeah, you probably should watch it. But I don't know. I don't think I I could ask my friends to join me for, you know, drinks in a movie if this was the one. Tim? Yeah, I... I had to, like, I I put all my other notes on there, like, soon after watching the movie, and I had to give myself a cooling off period before I could, like, commit to one way or the other if I would recommend this. And I I think in the end I would probably say no, because if I were to recommend it, there would be so many caveats as to render it kind of useless. Like, I would recommend individual scenes to horror fans. Like, I would, like, pull out the the restaurant scene i would pull out the finale at the end and be like this like this is really cool like this is a really interesting set piece and everything but the rest of the movie is either like fairly bland and just like not all that interesting or just cringe inducing in the worst way imaginable where it's like you have to sit through so the like I was thinking of Sean Penn, but I think like first run at Rain Man, like you put it, Linton, is a pretty apt description for for what we watch throughout most of the movie. It's it's a speed like it's a speed bump to really being able to enjoy this movie in a so bad it's good kind of way. Uh, so it's I yeah probably not yeah not the whole thing anyway. Layla. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I think I'd put in the notes that I would recommend it, but 
you know, only as like an oddity and with all, obviously all the caveats of that it is, you know, it's disturbing. There's like really like truly dark twisted stuff in there about like, you know, killing kids, killing cats. I mean, it's like eek, you know, so it is like a disturbed sort of vision. Um, but, you know, like I said, there is some interesting stuff. We didn't really talk about the very, very end where he's basically in, um, you know, an asylum. He's in a straitjacket, which is very, like, straight out of, like, In the Mouth of Madness. Mm. Um, and he's like, wait, this isn't me. This is me. And they go through the mirror again. And he's so, like, distraught in that moment of, like, this idea of being trapped in a dream, of being trapped in a nightmare that you can't wake up out of, this this state that you can't escape. And there's something, you know, sad and really disturbing about that. So I guess just as, like, an oddity, as you say, of, you know, just something weird to watch i would say yes but only knowing you know everything that we've just mentioned here mm-hmm. that was a really effective ending for like a movie that's so preoccupied with like what's a dream what's a reality i i kind of forgot about that that was a good mm-hmm. point yeah for me um there's one note that i i had from uh that i wanted to put out there that one critic considered the film quote very clearly the handiwork of a rank amateur under the influence of powerful narcotics which uh, i thought was uh, you know pretty harsh but probably accurate i i would i guess i would disagree with the rank amateur part though because like like i said the production design and horror stuff that stacks up with like some of the best like low level like low budget horror stuff that I've seen. I mean, you know, obviously if you're Stanley Kubrick and other people and you have just millions upon millions of dollars and like studio backing and you've made 15 movies, yeah, you might be doing some different stuff. But if we're talking about like Sam Raimi and the evil dead doing the evil dead, you know, like in their early days and they were just like some dudes in a cabin and figuring stuff out. There's a lot in this movie that's like comparable to better than what they were doing. And there's other horror classics like that where they're really low level, low budget affairs, but they were able to just like make stuff really work. And so that's what draws me to it. I I do think Getty could have had an interesting career in horror. I think he could have become, he he died, he was like 47. And as we said, Mm -hmm. he was like meth addicted and a recluse. And so, you know, and he spent like a decade working on this. So, you know, he... I have no idea what was going on, you know, I mean, he was rich already, but I I don't know if, you know, for a decade he was trying to get other gigs or if he was just immersed in this or having his own problems. But it is unfortunate because there is talent there that he could have been unleashed on a lot of like horror work, um, you know, and and maybe he could have developed other scripts, you know, if he had had time. And, you know, if if he had done this one and it came out in 2003 and it's like, oh, I could have done better. And then, you know, maybe over time he could have developed into like a stronger horror director. I don't know. But I I do think there are valuable aspects to this. So, yeah, I would say I would recommend it as an oddity and as an experience. I think especially if you are into weird movies, seeing the fringes, (laughs) where where the line is or, uh, you know, and that's kind of what this podcast uh, is, is built upon to some degree. So I'd recommend it for that. I recommend it to horror fans. I think just the set pieces alone are worth seeing. At the end of the day, I don't think a whole lot of people are going to walk away and think like, that movie's great, or that's going to be in my collection, or that movie's really undersung. You know, like, I think all of its problems outshine its benefits, but there's a lot of good stuff in there too. And there's stuff that 
if you had somebody shaping it, if he wasn't like George Lucasing it, the, this movie into existence, like if it wasn't just the one rich guy who's like, I can do whatever I want. If he had like other people who are like, I don't know, Andrew, maybe, uh, maybe change this part. <laughs> um, then, you know, it could have been a stronger effort, but yeah. So I recommend it as an experience or oddity. I don't expect a whole lot of people to like want to own it, but there are definitely some horror fans out there who would. Okay, so that brings us to wrapping up here. I'll just go with Can I Find This? This movie actually can be found quite widely, surprisingly enough. It is for free on Tubi. So if you want to watch it uh, right now, go there and uh, you can stream it right away. Uh, if you want to pay for it, you know, to uh, contribute to the Getty estate for some reason, it's on YouTube, Google Play, Amazon Prime, Vudu, and I think other streaming services. It is on DVD, although it looked like it might be like coming out of print or maybe it's just a COVID availability thing, but it is on DVD, does not appear to be on Blu-ray, but was on inter American Blu-ray, but it is on international Blu-ray, I think it was like region B or something, so you would need a region free player to be able to play that. So if you want to check out The Evil Within, the easiest thing would be to find it on Tubi, T-U-B-I, and that's a some kind of streaming service that I've come across every once in a while. Well, those newfangled things the kids are yeah. using. <laughs> I really had never heard of it before I started looking up stuff for this podcast. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I guess you can watch movies on it. So uh, they have some free <laughs> stuff. Um, so yeah, so you can find it uh, in those channels. And then bringing us to what we will be looking at next time, we are going to switch gears and make a hard right turn away from the evil within. And we're going to be looking at 2007's musical once the irish musical once so uh very different film very different vibe um and uh a whole new panel to look at that one so join us next time